everybody, you're listening to the Rope Podcast with Fox and Maya. Thanks for supporting the show. This is a show with adult content, so if you're not of legal age where you live, then turn off now. This podcast is about rope bondage. Rope bondage is edge play with inherent risk, and we strongly recommend you get proper training and listen to our episode zero on safety and consent in rope before attempting it. Find it at the top of our FedLife page, Rope Podcast. Fox is a rigger and I am Maya on my bottom and we're rock partners who've been practicing together for about five years. We live in Bangkok and love to share our passion for rope with the wider community. Today's episode is sponsored by Friction Live. Friction Live offers a variety of kink classes, mostly centered around rope and things you can do to complement your rope, which you can follow along with from wherever you have a computer. You can attend the class live or view it recorded at your convenience. Check them out at frictionlive.ca. Today, Maya, we are thrilled to be talking to Shay, who is the author of the excellent book, Tying and Flying Bondage for Self-Suspension. She is also a BDSM and sexuality educator, a medical professional, and she hosts and facilitates many kink events. Many of our listeners will be very excited for this interview, and we personally are very big fans of Shay. We've watched many of her performances and attended her online classes, and we are so happy to talk with her today. So, Shay, welcome to the Rope Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you both. All right. Shay, to get us started, can you tell us how you got interested in rope bondage in the first place? Yeah, I first got involved in rope in 2005. I went to Shabara Khan in Chicago. And the very first rope class I went to was an amazing beginner class by Lee Carrington and really dove into learning rope that weekend. I mostly did bedroom bondage for years, taught beginner level classes. I'm a nerdy person and have always really enjoyed the cerebral aspects of learning bondage and learning knots. Uh, although I didn't have a super easy time uh, learning knots. I'm not a natural at it. It's always been very challenging for me, but I like a challenge, so it works out. And I also love photos, and so I've enjoyed the decorative aspect of rope as well. That's brilliant. And when you got started in bedroom bondage, were you doing that more as a top or more as a bottom or both? I started exclusively as a bottom. I didn't think that I would ever tie rope. I remember in that first class that Lee taught, one of the things that he encouraged folks to do, as I recall, was to try out both sides. And at the time I was thinking to myself, I don't, you know, I never want to actually tie anything. Why do I need to learn any of this? And of course now, <laughs> jokes you know, on you. What you say. <laughs> Uh, and so now when we teach, we very much encourage that as well. You know, we encourage folks to learn both perspectives. And I think it's a really valuable way to teach. And I appreciate that uh, we started with that philosophy, too. Mm. Awesome. And you have quite a diverse kink and sexuality CV. We've seen you in all kinds of things. So where does rope fit uh, with your other kinks? My core kink is actually exhibitionism, ah. and it, it took me a while to accept that because I, I got some messages in the kink scene that somehow what you do in private is more real, or if you're just doing something in front of an audience, it's less sincere somehow. But I don't, I don't feel that way. Um, I got into self-suspension for movement, and it naturally turned into a performance activity, which kind of brings the rope and the exhibitionism together in a way that just is super fulfilling to me. 
Uh, I think a lot of us in kink are looking for mindfulness. You know, we're looking for activities that bring us into the moment, that stop that brain chatter. I know that's true for me. My brain is just a bag full of cats. And Mm -hmm. self-suspension, especially when I have an audience, really does that for me. It just shuts down all of that all of that chatter, all of those cats stop uh, squirreling around in my brain and I can just be fully present in the moment. Hmm. So when you say your main kink is exhibitionism, what does that make you feel? What do you get out of it? It's an interesting question. I'm not sure that, uh, you know, why if somebody's into foot fetishes or something, you know, why are they into feet? I'm not sure. I'm not sure I can explain it exactly. It's just something that I came to realize and embrace. Mm-hmm. I there's just something about being watched and even though I'm an introvert I love being in a crowd I love producing events I love hosting I mean part of that is just because as an introvert I'm an awkward turtle when I'm in a crowd and I don't have something to do so I I also just love having a specific activity that I can do and rope is actually awesome for that too it's very can be very structured and give you uh, you know, a way to kind of interact with people that isn't just free form everything. You kind of have a, a path to follow, which can be, I think, super helpful for people who are maybe have a little more awkwardness like I do. Mm, that makes sense. Shay, what was the trigger for you to start your self-suspension journey? When I first started uh, bottoming for suspension after having done bedroom bondage with my partner for many years, I felt like I was a bad suspension bottom. And I'm putting that in, you know, air quotes, bad suspension bottom. Uh, But everything that I was put in by my tops at the time, I couldn't stay in for very long. And I didn't, I can't do rope on my upper arms. Uh, I have very sensitive arm nerves. I learned right away that doing box ties or, you know, common ties that put load bearing rope on your upper arms were were just not working for my body. Mm -hmm. And I also... The first time I was suspended, uh, I just thought it was so cool that I was in the air. I started wanting to move around, and I actually accidentally kicked my top in the head. (laughs) But he just hadn't really expected me to be tossing around like that. Apparently, that was not the way that uh, at least he was expecting me to interact. So I stopped doing suspension for a while after that because... Uh, it just didn't seem like that was what I wanted to do connected with the way that I was learning about suspension. Um, I was intrigued by self-suspension, but I never really felt that I could possibly do it. Uh, and then when that really changed was in 2012, I was put in a puppet or marionette suspension by not Steve. Mm-hmm. And I had seen him doing this with other people and you know, eagerly asked if he would suspend me and he agreed to do so. Uh, if you've ever seen a puppet suspension, they're just super mobile. The person who's suspended is fully controlling uh, all the motion. You can flip and you can make all sorts of different positions. And being in that suspension just changed my whole perspective on myself as a worthy rope human because I had so much fun with it. And I was it was a revelation. It just changed everything for me. And uh, I went home and immediately started trying to reverse engineer that suspension because I didn't know anyone who was tying that way. Uh, I, you know, I live in San Francisco, but I, I hadn't seen that type of suspension before. So I had pictures of it and started trying to just reverse engineer. How did he create this? 
And so that was really how I got started self-suspending. Hey guys, this is Fox coming in for a short break. Listeners like you make this podcast possible. We want to continue making this podcast for you for a long time. And to do that, we need your support. Please go to ropepodcast.com to buy rope video lessons from experts so we get a small commission on your purchase at no extra cost to you. In addition, a really great way to help us is donating on Patreon. A one-time amount or a monthly pledge that can be as little as the cost of your morning coffee makes a big difference to us. And you will gain cool perks like behind-the-scenes photos and the ability to vote on future podcast topics. Go support us on ropepodcast.com because you love rope too. That's really awesome. So it sounds like at first you encountered a type of suspension that was a bit one true way where people were tying TKs and expecting you to be static and that's not really what worked for you. But then you discovered you didn't have to follow that one true way and you could cut your own path. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a really good way of uh, of phrasing it, yeah. The wonderful book that you've written, I have to admit that I don't self-suspend, I've got them on me, uh, but nonetheless, I've read the book. Um, and you talk about intention um, early on the book in terms of why people self-suspend and the reasons. So can you tell me about the role of intention in self-suspending? Yeah, it's always important, as you've said, to begin with intention. And that means asking yourself questions like, you know, why are you interested in self-bondage or self-suspension? And this applies on both a macro and a micro scale. So I'll talk about kind of both of those. On the macro or broader scale, if I'm mostly interested in self-suspension for uh, dynamic performance, for example, the way I'm going to want to focus my lab time and the classes that I'll take and the way that I'm going to learn is going to be quite different than if I'm mostly interested in self-suspension as ritual, or if I'm mostly interested in, you know, self-bondage for erotic self-play. So some of those possible intentions can include things like I've mentioned for sensual or sexual self-play, for sadistic or masochistic self-play, which is quite a different focus. And I also think it's really important and a quick content warning for a discussion of, uh, a brief discussion of uh, self-harm but I think it's really important to distinguish self-play from self-harm in the mm -hmm. same way that we distinguish consensual kink from abuse in a relationship. And it's a very complicated and nuanced topic, but if folks are having concern about that, I would really encourage them to talk with a kink-aware therapist. So I do always want to flag that when I'm talking about like masochistic self-play. Do you have a definition that helps set the difference between what can be considered self-play and when you enter into self-harm territory? To me, it really is exactly what we're talking about. It's that intention piece. Uh, I think that it just has to do with, just as we look at, you know, I've been, I guess, again, con you know, content warning for discussion of abuse. Um, I was in an abusive relationship when I was much younger and was slapped and you know physically abused oh, and that's obviously very different from the bdsm scenes that i do with my partner where he'll also slap me the action is the same uh but it's consensual the intention behind it and the psychology is entirely different so i i think it's that's the way that i think about it uh, but it's definitely something that I think is pretty nuanced and, you know, could probably be its own whole uh, podcast episode. 
Okay, that's super interesting and definitely something we should um, talk more in depth about at some point. Uh, Shay, you've written in a different topic. You've written that you find flow state easier to get into when you self-suspend as opposed to when you bottom for rope. Why do you think that is? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, to quickly define terms, the idea of flow, if people aren't familiar with that, originates study of happiness. So flow is defined as a state in which people are so involved in an activity that nothing else seems to matter. The experience is so enjoyable that you'll continue doing it just for the sheer sake of doing it. So many people have experienced flow. You know, it's super common among musicians. I play harp and immediately connected the concept in the context of being a harp player. Musicians might say that they're getting in the groove. An athlete might say they're in the zone. Uh, video game makers consider flow criteria and work on creating a game experience that puts players into flow. Mm -hmm. So this experience is also really common in kink activities like partner kink or bondage play. There's actually even been studies that have looked at it in that specific context. Uh, for example, there was a study in the Journal of Positive Psych uh, Sexuality that looked at high levels of reported flow states in BDSM tops. And when I'm self-tying, I experience that as being like combining topping and bottoming. So I definitely feel like that applies here. Um, self-tying engages my mind and my body. It takes away all of those kind of questions and worries and allows me to be fully present in the moment with my mind and body working harmoniously. Whereas uh, when I'm bottoming, I'm often just worrying about what my partner might be experiencing or perceiving and that gets in the way of being fully in the moment. And I mean, self-suspension, you just, you have more things to do. So my mind is less likely to inadvertently wander. I don't know if the way, I feel like for some people, the concept of flow really connects with the way they do an experience rope. And for some people it doesn't. I'm not sure, does that concept uh, kind of connect with the way both of you like to do rope? Oh, absolutely. And as a top, I would say flow state is one of the core things I seek in rope practice. And the research that we've read, um, just as you've said there, indicates that it's much more common for tops to feel flow and bottoms to feel um, what I think people refer to as rope space or subspace, but I think maybe is a different uh, feeling state than flow. Yeah, what I've researched mostly with regards to bottoming, I think it has more in common with what's called transient hypofrontality, which is an experience of, you know, as we were kind of talking about uh, the thinking parts of your brain somewhat quieting down uh, and getting into that in the moment space, but kind of by a different mechanism. Mm -hmm. So I agree that it's a, it's a quite different experience. And part of what's magic for me about self-suspending is getting to sort of experience both of those at once. Yeah. Oh yeah, of yeah. course, because yeah. you're getting both sides of the coins. The bottoming doesn't get in the way of the flow because that's what I was wondering. It's definitely a trick to, one of the safety things with regards to self-suspension is making sure that you are able to kind of maintain your bearings enough to keep track of the technical aspects and the safety of what you're doing while also being able to dip in and out of that more bottomy type space. And that's definitely something that I think building that skill happens over time. For me, I'm able to, it feels almost like surfing that wave. There's 
times when I'm in more of that bottoming space and then times when it feels more toppy. And I find that interplay and that switching to be very pleasurable. I know some people, there's been times that I've taught people in self-suspension classes who had only really experience with bottoming and doing a little bit of floor work as tops. And sometimes what they learn in a self-suspension class is like, oh my God, this is a lot of work and I I really want to bottom and not <laughs> do all this tying. And I'm like, fabulous, you've learned something about yourself and that's that's great, you know? Um, which kind of comes back to the intention, right? Because rope uh, doing self-suspension can be also a great way to build bondage skills, both topping or bottoming. Uh, you know, some people who mostly do partnered play might still self-tie as part of partnered play. For years, my partner Stefanos, I tried to talk him into learning suspension bondage, but it's not really something you can just kind of pick up casually, as you both you know, know. It's it's so much work to to learn it, really, uh, and there's a lot involved. So I still will self-suspend as part of a partnered scene with him, where I do the bondage part, and then maybe he single tails me, or we do something sexy, uh, and so it can be worked into partnered play as well. And with all of those intentions, you know, as as you said, there's no one true way to do or experience rope. So I think those are all really fantastic and finding like what works for you. Yeah, that's a great idea. And a super original application for self-suspension is you can do the suspension part of a bigger scene and then your partner does some other aspect or you could even suspend yourself to be fucked by someone, I expect. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I, I love doing that kind of thing. Uh, we've definitely done very loud. I, my favorite is suspending myself and then Stefano single tails me. Single mm -hmm. tail and suspension works pretty well together, I think, because mm -hmm. you can still agree. get some distance. And plus, since I'm such an exhibitionist, you know, making the sounds of the single tail tends to draw a crowd. And <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> so some of the skills that you've mentioned there are balancing that top and bottom state. What are the other skills that you think self-suspenders need to build before they go in the air? I'm a huge advocate for progressing safely, uh, but also not dictating a one true path that everyone needs to follow that says you need to do X number of years on the floor or X numbers of hours of training or training with such and such grand poobah before you so much as look at a hard point. I've seen folks with like other relevant experience, such as aerial or even sailing, uh, progress pretty quickly from learning floor work to doing self-suspension. There's definitely foundational skills, things like rope handling and tension, but even more important than the mechanics, I think is having a base knowledge of the risks involved and having the ability to weigh those and mitigate risks appropriately. And also to understand that things won't always go exactly according to plan uh, and building enough experience so that you can react appropriately in unexpected situations. Hmm. Speaking of things not going according to plan, Shay, you are a medical professional and you have written quite a lot about nerve damage and the risks of rope bondage. How would you advise our listeners in terms of how self-suspenders can mitigate some of the risks? Oh, nerve damage is one of those topics I could spend hours talking about. Uh, it's a relatively common and relatively serious risk. And I definitely encourage self-suspenders and everyone who does bondage to consider factors like anatomical location. Generally, the upper body is more vulnerable than the lower body because things like fat and muscle tend to be somewhat protective of your nerves. Mm -hmm. 
Also thinking about individual differences in vulnerability. I mentioned that if, if I'm even, I, if I sleep on my arm funny, I wake up with ulnar nerve compression, numbness in my pinky and my fourth finger that doesn't go away for hours just from sleeping on it wrong. You sleep dangerously. <laughs> I, I guess I sleep dangerously. Uh, and if I'm in a box tie, even if I hold my arms in a box tie position behind my back, I start to get nerve tingly and numbness and bad feelings within about five minutes. Wow. And then I also know folks who can be suspended in box ties, stay in them for, you know, 45 minutes plus and do them over and over and do fine. So there's just a lot of individual differences that you need to kind of take into account. Um, things like duration and severity of compression, stretch or stress positioning. I think people underestimate the effect of stretch on nerve damage and nerve injuries and things like environment. A cold environment will make you more prone to nerve injuries. Uh, things like other distracting stimuli. If you're you know, doing a sexual scene and you add a Hitachi, how much attention are you paying to your hands at that point to monitor your nerves? You know, it tends to get in the way. Plus all that swinging back and forth will add extra mechanical forces to your scene. Yeah, there's a whole lot to, there's a whole lot to consider. Um, there's an aviation saying that I like that I think applies here. It's, uh, takeoffs are optional, landings are mandatory. <laughs> so I think this is extra important for self suspension, just making sure you save enough body awareness to have some reserves, both mentally and physically, to get yourself untied. Um, as I say in Alice in Wonderland, you know, you can always have more, but you can't very well have less. I always encourage folks to start slow, untie at the first sign of trouble and ramp up the intensity of what they're doing over time as they learn their bodies. Um, and I mean, we think of consent as part of partnered play, but I think it's useful to apply that framework when you're talking about self play and to be mindful of the difference between consenting to acts and consenting to outcomes. Like you said at the beginning of the podcast, what we do is inherently risky and it just isn't possible to guarantee a good outcome. Your process can be good and you can still have a bad outcome. Your process can, you can still have a good outcome, which is not an excuse to be sloppy because, of course, process still matters. But with regards to consent practices and risk awareness, I think it's really important to uh, be aware of. And what can self-suspenders learn from rope tops and rope bottoms and vice versa? Yeah, I think I can't emphasize enough how good of a learning tool I think self-suspension is. Uh, of course, you learn tying technique, but also just learning to relating to the experience of being in rope. Um, as a person in rope, uh, self-suspension is just an invaluable tool to lab your own preferences, to learn to differentiate between warning signs of damage versus rope sensations that are intense but not harmful. Uh, when I first learned self-suspension, there weren't any classes or even online tutorials. And I took what I had learned in partnered suspension classes and applied that to self-bondage. And of course, there's a lot of good stuff there from upline techniques to pain processing, but it doesn't translate perfectly, which is part of what inspired me to write the book in the first place. So I definitely think that there's a lot that can go back and forth between uh, self-suspension and uh, partnered rope. What about spotters, Shay? Would you say self-suspension is something that's okay to do when you're all alone at home? I always advocate that folks never self-suspend alone and that people always have a spotter. 
uh, it's pretty, it's a dark thing to say, but being in bondage and being alone, whether self-tying, usually in autoerotic asphyxiation type situations, which is very different from what I teach and what I do, um, or bondage and alone, which is being left alone by a partner, is the number one cause of BDSM-related fatalities. It's unfortunate, but it's important to know that that's the level of risk that you're talking about. So I've heard from some self-suspenders who've had pretty harrowing experiences and, you know, either were very grateful that they did have a spotter or had, you know, near near misses without having a spotter and had some really, really harrowing things happen. So I always think it's incredibly important to have a spotter and, you know, communicating expectations with the spotter up front. It's much better to set your boat on a good course to begin with than to be right on top of an iceberg and only then try to take a hard turn. Right. Mm -hmm. And that includes factors like talking to your spotter about how they should interact with you while you're self-suspending. Do you want do you want advice while you're tying? Do you want them to talk to you at all? How intently do you want them to watch you? I usually prefer if my spotters aren't staring me down every second. <laughs> I prefer someone who's kind of, and if I'm practicing or unless I'm doing something specifically for performance, if I'm like rehearsing or just sort of labbing something, it's great if my spotter can be sitting at the kitchen table, they're like eight feet away, they're playing on their computer or something, and they're looking at me and they're present, they can hear everything, but they're not necessarily staring at me every second. Uh, but some people might want, you know, their spotter to really be intently watching them. Um, you know, do you want your spotter to physically interact with you, to touch you within what parameters? What would be warning signs that you would need help? What should they be watching for? Um, where are your safety tools and when and how should they be used? The most often thing that I end up with spotters needing to do is if I'm really experimenting with something ridiculous and, you know, something gets stuck or I'm just worn out, commonly it's like pull me over a chair and then I can stand on my chair and sort out whatever bullshit I got myself into. Uh, so that's kind of the most common thing. But and spotting can also be within a dynamic. You know, I could be my my partner can be spotting me from a dominant headspace or from a submissive headspace. It can be part of a ritual between us. And so thinking through some of those aspects, it doesn't have to be uh, a chore. You know, this can be part of a uh, play that you're doing. That's I, lovely. I enjoyed the um, piece from Stefanos about spotting in the book. And there's also a great uh, checklist for spotters. I think it's something which perhaps people don't automatically think of. So I think it's really worth pointing out. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed, even if people don't necessarily use the checklist itself, I hope just thinking through some of those questions. I'm someone who loves paperwork and I love checklists, <laughs> mm -hmm. so that's the way my brain automatically goes. But I think even if you don't actually use them, just thinking through, oh, here's some of the things I want to communicate. And like most things in the book, this is born through hard experience of having you know folks spot for me where i hadn't communicated expectations and things go then they do something that i hadn't told them not to do but i hadn't given them any guidance at all and then i find myself in the situation of trying to redirect trying to fix things and i would have had a much easier time if i had just communicated up front uh, you do a lot of amazing uh, self-suspending performances which we uh, have watched a number of them and we love them how do you develop them 
I love performing, so I love this question. I'm often inspired by specific songs, but sometimes I'll have a concept and then find music to match it. I have a whole list of songs that I want to create performances to, but haven't yet had the opportunity. Um, I love when events I'm performing at have specific themes because those really help with inspiring performance concepts. I, I always find it interesting how creativity actually thrives with some limitations. As a performer, it's really hard to be told there's no theme, there's no limitations, just do whatever you want. Create anything. Yeah, it seems like a good thing. You're like, oh, I can do anything. Uh, but it actually doesn't promote, at least for me, my best creative moments. Uh, I think it was Orson Welles who said, quote, uh, the enemy of art is the absence of limitations. Hmm. Uh, and I think that's important advice creatively. I try to set challenges for myself, such as using only uh, a couple pieces of rope, keeping a single time frame, hitting certain music cues and things like that. Um, I also always think to myself, you're going to be on a stage. You'll have an audience. How do you want them to feel? And it always comes back to that intention and emotional intent. That's awesome. Shay, you've written about the misconception by others that performance art isn't, quote, real play, but you, Shay, love circus rope. What are some examples of the resistance to this type of play you've encountered in the BDSM community? Speaking of circus rope specifically, I want to kind of define how I use that term, yeah. just because I don't think it's necessarily super widely used. Uh, but I'm kind of referring to Western style rope that's focused on movement and focused on emotions like joy and pride and less directly focused on sensuality or sex hmm. rather than uh, rope that's focused more on immobilization and playing with emotions like shame, suffering, eroticism. Uh, and I want to clarify, of course, that all of those are totally valid and I hope everyone will find what works for them. Uh, the reason I feel that it's important to elevate circus bondage, as it were, is simply because I want folks to have options, to have multiple different ways that they can connect with rope. Uh, like we were talking about earlier in the podcast, when I started doing suspension, the environment I was in was all sensual shabari all the time. Mm -hmm. And when that didn't connect with the way I wanted to do suspension, I just thought I sucked at suspension. And that held me back from doing more of it for years. Uh, so when I discovered Circus Rope, it was really a revelation. It radically shifted my whole perception of myself. So I'm not out here in any way saying that everyone should do Circus Rope or that any style is better than any other style. I just hope folks will be aware of the different styles and can kind of explore and find out what works for them of all of those different available options. Hmm. That's such an awesome positive message. And if you can't find an option that works for you, I guess you can just invent your own, right? I love that. Yes. Let's invent some new stuff. I love when people come up with new creative, creative situations. And I, I always love going to, you know, new classes that I see on the schedule with some, you know, especially people who are, to be honest, newer to the community. I think. Some of my self-suspension is inspired by my partner, Gabriel, who has a ridiculous amount of experience in other knot work and aerial things. He was you know, sailing and doing various rope climbing, things like that. And it's always really interesting. I'll set problems for him and ask him, how would you, how would you handle this situation? How would you tie off this upline within XYZ parameter? 
and just see what he comes up with without any preconceptions. And I always think it's so interesting to kind of find new approaches like that. That is amazing. Thank you, Shay, for talking to us today and so much positivity. And at the same time, looking in the face of the very real risk and the safety aspects. And I think everyone should have a look at your book because A, it's beautifully done with the photos and so on. And it's really an interesting read. Uh, Shay, where can our listeners find you online at the moment? My first social media love is Twitter. I'm at Shay Blondie, S-H-A-Y-B-L-O-N-D-I-E on Twitter. I also am on Instagram and Facebook, Shay Tiziano. And my book is available. I always encourage people to buy it from Wicked Grounds or vendors like Twisted Monk and Chromanauts also carry it. And when you buy through them, all of the proceeds benefit those you know, small businesses, local businesses, which I really appreciate, as opposed to supporting Amazon, which doesn't need our money, that's for sure. So uh, I always encourage folks to look through Wicked Grounds and especially those you know, smaller venues. And thank you to everyone. I've been really floored by the support for the book when it came out. I was expecting, I was expecting more of a, I don't, maybe I'm a pessimist. I was worried that people would not respond well or that it would, I don't know, seem like uh, I was trying to put forth, uh, elevate myself somehow, which my whole intention is just to be the content that I wanted to see in the world and hopefully give people some resources that I wish I had had uh, when I had started. So the community has been so amazing and so many people helped to make the book happen. And I'm just so appreciative of everyone. So many people contributed photos, contributed articles, my awesome book designer, Dead Heavy, my editor, Evie, so many test readers. It was very much a group project and I'm so appreciative of everyone. It's one of the highest quality road books I've seen so far. Oh, thank you. It was, I, I still kind of look at it and I'm like, I don't know how I got this done, to be honest, because <laughs> it was so much work. I don't know. All right. That will be all from us to the Add the Rope podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from and come find us on our FetLife page or Instagram Rope Podcast. If you have a question related to rope, we'd love to answer it in one of our future episodes. Drop us a message on FetLife or Instagram. If you like this podcast and would enjoy more episodes, find all the ways to support us on our website, rockpodcast.com. In particular, please consider supporting us directly on our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. And have fun tying.